On this episode of the Fear Me Out podcast, Justine Hamilton and I have the great pleasure of interviewing a woman by the name of Gwyn Lurie. Gwyn is a very accomplished woman. She owns the Montecito Journal and is the CEO uh, and all the other publications. I have admired her from afar for a long time. I am a very faithful reader of the Montecito Journal, and her editorials are really fantastic. So I invited her to come on the show to talk about anti-Semitism and other important things. There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now, Welcome Dr. to the Fear Me Out podcast. Today I have the great pleasure of introducing somebody who I've admired from far and never met before. And I'm so glad that she was willing to come on my podcast. Her name is Gwyn Lurie. She is a very accomplished woman in Santa Barbara, has a lot of people that follow her and are interested in her opinions about things. And I've been doing a series on anti-Semitism, so that's part of what we're going to talk about today. So Gwen, I would love it if you would please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Dana. I, um, my name is Gwen Lurie, as you said. I'm the CEO and executive editor of the Montecito Journal Media Group, which publishes the Montecito Journal the RIV magazine, the Montecito Journal Glossy magazine, and the Giving List books. And I, uh, Santa Barbara is my adopted home. I've been here full-time since 2009, so it's 14, almost 15 years. And I grew up in Los Angeles, Spent uh, as did you, Dana? Right? We went to the same. Yeah, we just figured out we went to the same junior high and high school. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I was there when there were dinosaurs still around, and I think not so much for you. I don't think that's true. Just a few years before me, and um, and then I went to UCLA undergraduate, and I went uh, left the country to go to graduate school. I went to Oxford University, um, studied international affairs, and then moved to. New York City. I worked for ABC News for a bunch of years and then came back to Los Angeles and worked in the dreaded Hollywood <laughs> for, uh, for uh, as an executive for a few years and then I became a screenwriter for a couple of decades actually. Moved to Santa Barbara and I really sound old when I go through all of them. That's a lot of accomplishment I'll tell you. I sound old um, and I we moved here in 2009 with our my husband, Les Firestein, our two daughters, Noah and Sydney, and uh, we came here to retreat, and none of that happened. <laughs> <laughs> so you're as busy now as you've ever been, I'm assuming. Maybe more. Yeah. yeah. So um, what was it like to grow up in Los Angeles as a Jewish woman? You know, I, I, my mom's a Holocaust survivor. Oh, okay. That's, um, a, that's a huge thing. So I think... That's mostly why I was very conscious of being Jewish, just because I grew up hearing her story. And my mom had an accent because she was from Poland. Oh, is okay. from Poland. My mother's still with us. She must have been really young. She was. She hid in an attic in a farmhouse in Poland for two years, nineteen wow. from uh, August 1942 to July 1944. So she was seven when the war and was then in Italy in displaced person camps for five years, and then her family um, immigrated to the United States. Wow. And how do you think that experience uh, affected you growing up with a mom that went through such a horrible experience? How much time do we have? As much as you want. <laughs> I think it's all of this is really, really important. Well, like you... And I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, and I went to Grant High School, which at the time was a very uh, Jewish yep. environment. 
Yes. Um, I would say probably 40% of the kids were Jewish. And um, in fact, there are now over 67 languages spoken in the homes of kids who go to Grant High School. So it's been really? quite a transformation of, of that community. Yeah. But at the time, it was, it was very uh, white, a lot of Jews. And so I really didn't think about it. You know, every weekend there was a bat mitzvah to go to or a bar mitzvah to go to. Um, it was just what we did. It was really our social life. It was our world. So I didn't think about it a lot. My family was not religious. Okay. Um, but we celebrated all the holidays. And um, really, you know, it, the holidays to me were about getting together with family and being yeah. with family. It wasn't, I didn't have super religious meaning to me. And um, was your mom, I mean, did she recover from her experience? Some people that were in the Holocaust did okay and others not so much. Do you know how it affected her? Did she ever talk about it? She talked about it a lot. Yeah? Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, about 13 or 14 years ago, my sister wrote a book called Bending Toward the Sun. She wrote it with my mother, and it is about my mom's experience surviving the Holocaust and my sister and our experience surviving my mother. <laughs> and and yeah. now how our kids will have to survive us. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and in 1987, I went with um, my sister and some of our cousins and we made a documentary film called Voices from the Attic, which oh. you, can you can stream online today. Wow. Um, and that is, we went and found the family that hid my family and we interviewed all the you children of all You actually survivors. found them alive? We went into the attic where oh, they hid. Oh my God, that is incredible. And we found incredible. my mother's home from before the war and... Wow. Um, and then, in fact, a few summers ago, we took my mother back. We went to Italy, and we found the DP camp in Cremona, Italy. Wow. Um, that still stands. It's now inhabited mostly by cats. I'm, I kid you not. Wow. But, um, but the answer to your original question is, did she um, recover? I don't think you recover. Yeah, that. it's hard to imagine. And she was five to seven when she was hiding, and with, her parents or who was she with she was with her mother and her father and her sister and her little brother and five uncles and an aunt all hiding kids. together there were 14 people in this attic oh my and god my mother two people died my mother's mother and her brother while they were there wow I talked to my mom about what her experience was like after the war because her family living in uh, Toronto and they brought refugees from Europe and it was a very frightening experience for her. She, she told me once that there was a woman that was laying in bed covered in food. And she couldn't go out of the room and except to get food. And she just piled food on her bed and just like had food as a blanket because she was so starved while she was in the camp that she couldn't live without just piles of food all around her altogether, which was pretty overwhelming for my mom as a you know young person seeing all of this. But um, I think that the... And I had a neighbor up the street, actually, that was in the Holocaust. And she told me that when she came back, uh, she was told not to tell anybody about her experience, that it was a secret and something to be ashamed of somehow. So she never talked about it until she was in her 80s. Well, I think a lot of survivors felt they needed to hide their Jewishness. Yeah, yes. Um, and I think that's what's so scary about what's going on now. Uh, though I will tell you an interesting a story I think is interesting, which is when my sister Leslie Gilbert Lurie and my mother Rita Lurie, and when they first wrote the book, and they speak all over, because um, there aren't a lot of surviving sure. um, Holocaust uh, survivors. And they went to Jordan High School in Jordan, in Jordan Downs, which is deep L.A., South Central, they believe it is L.A., um, it's, it's a tough neighborhood, yeah. and there are not a lot of white faces, certainly not a lot of Jewish faces in that yeah. neighborhood. And as the story was told to me, my mom and my sister sat in the car in the parking lot, and my mom looked at my sister and said, why would these kids care about what I have to say? I'm this old, white, Jewish woman. Right. And they went into the library, and 300 kids packed the library. Wow. And not only did they listen so attentively, 
but they gave up their lunch to stand in line to meet my mom. Oh. Like, hun- like hun- hundreds of kids. That's amazing. And we really talked about it after, and it was just so clear that people who survive trauma want to meet someone else who has survived trauma, that trauma right. is not unique to the Jewish people. Right. Um, you know, everyone owns their own journey, but um, it is, it's amazing to see someone recover from something so traumatic. Sure. Or to survive it. So how has what has happened in Israel as of late affected you personally? Well, I mean, I don't, really see it as affecting I I think I feel the way a lot of us do you know I'm I'm stunned at the world's response yeah um I I think I've always been aware of anti-semitism but maybe more as an intellectual construct than as an actual thing that impacts my life on a daily basis so to see uh students at all the universities supporting Hamas and protesting against all Jews as as colonialist, genocidal people, um, to me has been surprising and scary and deeply upsetting for a lot of reasons, um, not the least of which is I'm so disappointed in so many universities that they haven't taken this opportunity to teach, you know, which doesn't mean that everyone's entitled to their opinions about the politics of the Middle East. It is a complicated, you know, uh, tortured um, history. Yeah, uh, for sure. And I'm certainly not a supporter of Benjamin Netanyahu or his policies on the West Bank, and I, I consider myself a fairly liberal, progressive person um, in terms of my values. But, you know, Hamas is, is a Islamic fundamentalist jihadist organization that... Yeah terrorist organization so Mm -hmm. and i and i just can't help but think and maybe i'm wrong but i can't help but think that a lot of this is about a lack of education well i I couldn't agree with you more because i've seen the um reports that when they show these students that are protesting the charter that hamas has written Oh, we didn't know that. Oh, we didn't know that. Oh, we don't support that. And I said, well, why are you then protesting against Jews when, you know, when these people act in despicable ways and their main goal in life is to erase Jews from the face of the earth? Oh, we didn't know that. I think, well, why would you be so passionate about something you know nothing about? It's really frightening. I agree with you because I'm a really liberal person also. But I think, wait a minute, how is this serving me? to be so accepting and okay with, you know, all of this. It's not okay. No, it's not okay. And, and you know, I so deeply believe it doesn't serve anybody. You know, none of us would be better off, I personally believe, living under Sharia law. None of us. <laughs> well, especially uh, as a woman. <laughs> I would, well, I would. but a lot of people <laughs> who are supporting Hamas are women. And, yeah. and not standing up and calling out, uh, the travesty of women as spoils of war, which is what happened. Yes. And um, I, there's just so much about it that's deeply troubling. And, you know, I think many of us have been really concerned about the trend in this country and the oversimplification of really hard, complicated issues. Um, but I, I do think that in the sort of post-Donald Trump, post-George Floyd murder era, when a lot of these young people have come into uh, political maturity, so to speak, yeah. um, I think that this politics in this country have largely been viewed through a lens of race. Absolutely. And it's this same lens has been laid over this very complicated issue. So the Jews are the white oppressor. 
the Palestinians are the people of color who are oppressed, and that is the lens through this which this is being viewed. And um, listen, my heart goes out to every Palestinian family that is stuck in Gaza and all of the people who have had such devastating impact on their families. But what happened on October 7th was not okay. Right. And, um, and it's disappointing that more people have not stood up and said that full stop. Well, one of the things that I've noticed about myself is that I'm incredibly embarrassed about the way that I feel because it's turned me into not a very nice person when it comes to this issue. I feel really black and white, and usually I try to see things with as broad a perspective as I can. But because of my parents growing up with incredible anti-Semitism when they were kids, my mom had her nose broken a few times. Well, I mean, nothing compared to what your mom went through, but... Um, the reason we lived in the San Fernando Valley when I grew up is because they would not live anywhere that they were, they were not surrounded by Jewish people because they were so afraid of what would happen. And I didn't even know my real last name until we left Canada because they changed the name to a non-Jewish sounding name. Um, and so even though I don't celebrate my faith as a like in a religious way, I feel really strongly identified, probably more now than ever in my life, as a Jewish person, and so it just raises the hair on the back of my neck, like in ways that I'm, I'm not very proud of. I don't want people to be killed, obviously, that are innocent, but I don't see as much innocence as is shown on the media because, you know, the Palestinian people did elect Hamas as their government representative. In 2006. Yeah. And there hasn't been an election since. Well, that's I mean, true. I think that... I know they own the country. I get that. And it's dictatorship. It's not a democracy, that's for sure. But why don't other Arab countries take Palestinians into their fold during this really difficult time? Why will no Arab country take anybody from Palestine into their country? There's there is a border along Egypt, just like there's a border along Israel leading to Gaza, and that was closed. No, but I mean right. on the border of yes. Gaza. Yeah, and um, absolutely, one hundred percent. So why does nobody? Talk about that. Like, even your brothers won't take you in. Now, they make up a dumb excuse that, you know, if they take them in, that gives Israel the right to just take over the whole territory. Well, I don't know if, I guess they're, they're Muslim brothers, if that's what you're looking at. As, uh -huh. I mean, I don't think that that is a monolithic community, just like the Jewish community is not a monolithic community. Right. And I think nationalism is a very strong thing, yeah. including in the Middle East. Right. Um, and I think nobody feels the responsibility to take them in. They don't necessarily have the resources to take them in. Um, right. I, and I think they deserve a homeland, yes. too. You know, I, I do. Uh, you asked me at the beginning, how did it impact me to be the child of a Holocaust survivor? And I yeah. think um, probably in a lot of really unhealthy ways, but in the healthy way, I would say, or I view it as healthy in my value system, I think my mother, because the adults in her world, the, the, uh, the public officials and the people were so horrible and turned their world upside down, I think she became this very irreverent person who didn't necessarily respect people just because they were in a position of power. Right. And I think in our family, one of the values that was really um, held up as important was fairness in, in your uh, in my immediate family in my okay. in your biological family, family. Growing up. yeah and i think that that to me remains true to this day that that is the thing i become the most indignant about is when i think something is unfair much more than i do i'm more consistent about that than i am about my politics about anything like to me it's when something is unfair and there's so much about what's going on right now that feels unfair and that I can only come to the conclusion that it's about the hatred of Jews. Yes. And that's what scares me. And I mean, have you ever come up with any sort of an idea about why people hate Jews so much? I'm still trying to figure that out. I laugh because I think, well, what do I do? I don't think anybody <laughs> should hate me for, you know, just because I'm Jewish, but I know that there are people that do. So what is it about being Jewish that every holiday is a celebration of like running away from being slaves of some kind or, or, or you know, something like that? Do you, do you have a personal philosophy about that? It's so funny. I remember 
Jon Stewart did this really funny bit about how the Jews were losing the PR war when they make their kids dip carpets in, you know, like on Passover and <laughs> have the dead. And then the Christian people got Easter eggs and bunnies and chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, we're dipping food into tears and they're right, exactly. eating chocolate bunnies. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's not fair. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think there are good and bad people in every religion and every race. And I think that the Jewish people I know are the, are incredibly philanthropic. They're incredibly... Um, they, they're, they march when something's unfair. They march for LGBT community. They march during Black Lives Matter, you know, protests. Yeah. And... So to have groups, um, in some cases, like certain chapters of Black Lives Matter, turn uh-huh. on them, yes, you know, uh, I think felt like a betrayal. I do. And, uh-huh. you know, I don't know if you, um, I don't presume that anyone reads what I write, but a few weeks ago I wrote a piece about the, what happened recently and about a group that I... Um, put together with some friends. Well, this is what propelled me to get a hold of okay, you. Okay, right. So I read, you read I thought, that piece. I got to meet this woman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of not meeting her yet. <laughs> well, one of the interesting conversations that had that happened early on was, and I won't give up any of the identities of the people. You know, it's sort of a safe space. But one of the conversations that happened is some someone in the group said, um, or, or someone asked, but. Um, Someone in the group said, you know, members of, many members of the black community feel that the Jews abandoned them after the civil rights movement. And some, one of the Jewish people in the group said, would it surprise you to know that that's how many Jews feel about the black community, that we marched with you and, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. Right. (laughs) Yes, where's the reciprocity? Like, where is the... And he looked at him and said, I've never heard that. I've never heard anyone say that. So it's just, and there have been so many kind of epiphanous moments in these conversations where you realize that people, and look, you see this in politics, that if people don't take the time to study history and to understand what happened, it might as well have not happened. You know, that people are so susceptible to believing tropes and um you know just uh um conspiracies and all of these ideas and and it is um it's it's frightening and i think it is the basis of so much hate is ignorance on both sides on all sides sure well it's also so hard to understand it goes back so many years i've learned more i mean i was joking with dana like because I wasn't raised Jewish, I didn't even know what the Gaza Strip was. I'm like, is that near Las Vegas? I'm joking, <laughs> but, you know, and I really have learned so much just in this past month of, like, what, what has happened, and I've had to do my own research, and that's really kind of looking at both sides, because if you are on social media, one side is showing their side, of course, and the other side is showing their side, of course. So I had to go in and really, I read about, you know, the Palestinians, and then I'd go and I'd listen to Steve Letter in Los Angeles. And like, I was completely clueless. And I think that is part of the problem, because it's not so emotional for me it's not in my dna the holocaust and all of that i grew up learning about it but when we had a couple um when or was on here a couple weeks ago like i saw the passion from him and it is just in the the dna of people that have survived the holocaust and their families have survived it and it is such an uh, emotionally charged situation that i i'm not privy to because it it's not in my family well, it's, I think it's not in a lot of people's family. It's, Even it's, Jewish people, I do not think that the knowledge is in the DNA. I think it takes a real effort 
to understand. Agreed. Yeah. And I still don't understand. And I've listened to hours of podcasts and I've, like I said, I've read this and I followed this person and it's, it's so hard really to understand. And I think that that's part of it. And then again, this is really kind of the first big situation where we've had so much social media, where you're just seeing what you're following and then you just start following one. And then, you know, like, I mean, I, CNN is showing one thing and like Ion Palestine is showing something else and they're completely different things. And it has been for the last six weeks. And, and it's just, it's so hard and it's so multi-layered for like the lay person like me to really understand what's going on. And I think that's part of it of why people are just like, okay, well, we kind of know, you know, what you said happened recently with Black Lives Matters, et cetera, where it's like, let's just sort of jump on this race situation and not really think about or understand the history and what really happened. And it's like, no, we're just seeing, you know, numbers. And, and, for, and unfortunately, October 7th happened and there was a footage on that. And then since then, there's been footage every day of what's happening in Gaza, where you're just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, how, how many people are getting killed? What's happening? And so you're just, you, you know, it's, again, it's like a PR thing where like, I saw one day, October 7th, and since then, I've seen seven weeks of crazy stuff, and like I'm just never like, happened. yeah. Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting that you mentioned that your family was about fairness. I grew up in a Jewish family, and it was the opposite, completely the opposite. My dad, every day, uh, said that you got to make a choice in life between being a perpetrator or being a victim. And those are the only two options available, which was crazy. I mean, that's nuts, right? To say that that, that life is so extreme that you're either going to, uh, well, he said you're either going to be the chicken or the chicken feed, and you got to make a decision in your life which uh, way you're going to go. And I used to think to myself, well, what if you're just nice to people? Do you think that might be okay? <laughs> but his response is that there is no such thing as being nice to people because they'll just take advantage of you and they'll hurt you. He had such an extreme reaction to the anti-Semitism that he experienced that he never recovered. And, and um, fairness was not even... It's interesting that you say that because my mother's first cousin, one of the people who was in the attic with her hiding, went with us to Poland when we made this documentary film, my cousin Sally. And I remember in the film she said, I grew up with a different morality. I believe that if you're hungry, you have a right to steal. Mm. And if your life is threatened, you have a right to kill. Is he related to my dad? (laughs) (laughs) No, I understand that. Yeah. I mean, I do. And, And my husband, who he has a lot to say about this stuff. He grew up and didn't, he's Jewish. He did not really, I mean, he knew he was Jewish. <laughs> but he never went to temple, he never went to anything until he was about 10 and he came home and he went to, ultimately he went to private school in Manhattan. And all his friends are going to church on Sunday. And he said to his dad, I want to go to Sunday school too because all my friends are, and his dad said, well, you can go to Sunday school, but you have to go to a different kind of Sunday school. Right. And he said, well, where do I have to go? And he said, well, you're, they're Christian and you're something called Jewish. (laughs) He said, well, what does it mean to be Christian and what Uh does it mean to be Jewish? And he explained sort of simplistically both sides. And he said, you know, the Christians believe this and the Jews believe this. And Les looked at his dad and said, well, what do you believe? Mm. And his dad said, I believe there is no end to the inhumanity that man will perpetrate against his fellow man. That's what his father said? Boy, what a smart guy. Yeah. A sad smart guy. But uh, he's right. He was a psychiatrist. Oh, okay. Freudian. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) That fits right well. (laughs) And um, he, but Les grew up with that perspective. And, Uh you know, I mean, think about like kids in our time, right? You went to Sunday school. What's the first thing they showed you? Jews being liberated from the Holocaust. Films. Yes. You know, of emaciated Jews Uh being liberated, you know. And that was our induction into religion, that this is what it takes. And, you know, I think in some ways, I kind of sometimes feel like a failure that I didn't make 
our religion more a part of our home. I think it was a little tricky raising my kids in Santa Barbara right. in that respect. Um, and it probably wasn't my priority enough, so I didn't do it. I and mean, we lit the candles every once in a while when I remembered on a Friday night. But other than that, <laughs> much, and we I'm so Monica surprised, actually, like just coming from what your family went through and your mom went through, that it wasn't a bigger part of your life. We went to high holiday services and we celebrate Passover and Hanukkah and all the holidays and I loved that but again that was that was about family gathering and yeah. warmth and you know to it, me what felt loving yeah but it, it wasn't really a religious thing and um, even when you were growing up with your mom and dad they they weren't super religious about the faith I think my mom felt understandably very conflicted about God mm-hmm. and where was God yeah so when people say everything happens for a reason, I kind of look at them and go, really? <laughs> I can give you a few examples where maybe that's not true. Maybe there wasn't a reason. Um, yeah. Or maybe there wasn't. It's not such a good reason. Um, but, you know, my, my daughter now is back east in college at a very woke liberal arts university. And she's having a tough time. Yeah. You know, and she calls me and... She was home for Thanksgiving, and we had these long conversations. She said, but mom, what do you say to this? And what do you say to this? And what about what we're doing in Palestine, you know, in Gaza? And what about, and I said, here's the thing, Sandy. You have a responsibility as a human being on this earth to understand the facts, and then you could decide how you feel. Right. And it's very hard and even today for me, and you were saying you're, I mean, I've learned a ton in the last two months too, Justine. And, and you know, I said it, you will feel so much more empowered when people say something to you if you know what to say back. It's so hard to sit there and go, I don't know how to, like, I think that's not right, right. but I don't know how to argue that. Yeah. Uh-huh. I don't have the facts. And, you know, it is, um, I think, really important. And Dartmouth University actually did a great job on this front. I, and so many have failed. And UCLA, I can't even go there right now. I'm so disappointed in how UCLA has handled this. But Dartmouth, um, and I love, I mean, I loved, I was student body president of UCLA. I, I am a huge Bruin booster. And right now, my heart is broken for the kids there. And I could tell you a story why. But Dartmouth, um, and this is back to the piece that I wrote about this dinner with friends piece that I wrote. In their Middle Eastern Studies department, there are three lead professors. One is Israeli, or one is Jewish. I'm not sure if it's Israeli or she. Um, one is Egyptian, and one is Lebanese. And they're wow. friends. And they have trust. And they respect each other as colleagues. I'm sure they don't agree on everything. But they brought the kids together and did something they taught. And, you know, I think a lot of what's going on on university campuses now is being perpetrated by the academics. Mm -hmm. So what happened at UCLA? Well, there's a lot going on in student government at UCLA that a lot of the kids won't even talk to the Jewish kids. They're, They're made to talk through an intermediary. They're the Jews are... Zionist, genocidal. In fact, there was last year's student body president was this um, black student from a small town in Georgia. And I met him because every five years we have a student body president's reunion gathering. And so he was there. And he actually, I guess he knew, he knew I was Jewish. I guess he knew I was the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. And he, he and his chief of staff, this woman who was Jewish, sort of pulled me aside and wanted to talk to me. And he had just gone through this thing where they had been voting in the USAC Council, which is the Undergraduate Student Association Council, on a BDS um, amendment and a resolution. You know what BDS is? I don't. A boycott, divest, um, what is the S? It's, it's oh, for the... the it's, it's anti... The money from the school. It's basically what the... Um, what you know, we did for South Africa right. during apartheid, right? It right. is trying to get the university to divest from um, Israel, right? 
as a genocidal colonialist state. And um, this kid who, he grew up in Georgia, then he was in the military, then he transferred to UCLA, he ran for student body president as a junior, and he had never met a Jew before he came to UCLA. Wow. In his whole life? Never. Not in the military, not in Georgia. And he had never heard the word Holocaust until he came to UCLA. He didn't even know what the Holocaust was? He went to a public school, too. So in his small town in Georgia, they were taught about the Second World War, but the word Holocaust never came up. And he said that when he read the the, um, BDS resolution, he said... I didn't understand it all, but it seemed wrong to me. Like it seemed anti-Semitic. And I voted against it. And he was canceled so fast. Wow. There was a website put up that called him a Zionist. And then there were sexual abuse charges leveled against him that were completely trumped up. And, and, And I say they were trumped up because I know that one of the people who they claimed he had a was his chief of staff, who says it never happened. Like, she thinks he's a great guy. She said that is so untrue. She's left UCLA for the semester. She's taken a semester off in her senior year because it is so toxic. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, there was a moment where professors were giving students extra credit for attending these pro-Palestinian rallies. And um, so it's just, you know, I, I experienced UCLA as this, bastion of equity and you know trying always to root for fairness <laughs> for the underdog for right. you know and 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 it, there's no question that student groups have always been very not always very progressive but there's a strong streak of progressive politics that runs through student life right. and that was no different from when we were there but i can't imagine singling out one group as evil, uh, I just can't imagine. And you would never get away with it unless they were considered white, privileged, I guess, Jews. You know, and this is, um, it's a very interesting and surprising to me, maybe I'm naive, but surprising phenomenon. And Well, you wouldn't expect it in a liberal environment. At least I wouldn't. No. California, Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, I understand Georgia. I mean, I... I um, I have a switch on my desk that my brother gave me. I'm in charge of the Jew laser. I didn't know if you knew that. but uh, What does that mean? Well, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene yes, said yes, that. Yes. I just have a switch to turn it's it on and off at will. Yeah, that's good. I figured, my brother figured I'd be the best person to be in control of the Jew laser. That's, you know. You're powerful. Yeah, I, I like the idea. <laughs> so I, I just keep it on my desk uh, from Georgia. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know it's not funny, but I, it's just so absurd to me that. Sometimes I think maybe my dad was right. <laughs> you know, I hate that idea. He's very much like it was your aunt that you were talking about, right? My cousin who went. With oh, your cousin, Sally. Yeah. Who went with Sally? Yeah, that was my. Yeah, she was my mother's first cousin, so she's my, I guess, first cousin once removed. And she was the one that said, "If you're starving, it's okay to." Well, because my dad made a living as a white collar criminal, so he had no moral fiber at all when it came to making money. And he just figured that if people were stupid enough to buy his um, sales pitch, that that was their problem. And yet other times, he was the most generous person that you would ever meet. I mean, if you walk by a homeless person, you'd give the person $20 or whatever, just because he felt so sorry for him. It was such a dichotomy of generosity and complete paranoia about being victimized. That's so interesting. And were you aware of that? Oh, all the time. He didn't stop talking about it. I mean... Every day, he gave me a list of all the Jewish people that I should admire. And he had a list that was endless of Jewish people that accomplished great things in life. And only and Jewish I, people. What's that? Only Jewish people. Oh, only, and I would say to him, well, aren't there people that are like not Jewish that we might be proud of? He said, that doesn't matter. They don't matter. It's only <laughs> Jews that matter. And I, I just, Oh my God, I, I just didn't understand it. It didn't make any sense to me because I don't think there was a spiritual bone in either of my parents' body. Interesting is how unfunny the world has become. Unfunny? Unfunny. Why why do you say that? Well, we 
grew up telling Jewish jokes, Polish jokes, oh, Jewish sure. jokes, that yeah. jokes. You know, it's like, you know, it was like equal opportunity to make fun of, right? You really can't say anything anymore. Maybe not out loud, um, but you should meet my kids. They're still really good at still, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Um, but uh, I don't know how it will ever change either. But you're right. I mean, you, you, you can't say anything. I mean, I was talking to an 80-year-old man at lunch today, and he was going to the Chinese restaurant and showed me how he was going to the Chinese restaurant with his face. And I'm like, you can't do that. <laughs> like, he's like, why? I go, that, you can't not do that. But he could have 10 years ago, 20 years ago. The thing it doesn't like I think it's okay that we don't I mean I think words matter sure and I think that that jokes can be not so funny right yeah and I I totally get that and I appreciate that what I don't what I worry about is that and I and I look at our kids Justina our kids generation that they're so afraid to even ask a question for fear of being and wow. I think that um, I think it, it has a real impact on our ability to form relationships, to learn. You know, Jonathan Greenblatt at the ADL says he doesn't believe in cancel con- culture; he believes in council culture. Yeah, that's you nice. Know that that you can explain things to someone. And yeah, people are capable of growing and learning and becoming more empathic and. I think we're robbing each other of a chance to grow and to build relationships. And, you know, it's... Um so the, what you're saying, I think, is that your kids worry a lot about what other people might think of them. And if they I say the wrong thing, they could be ostracized from their peers. Is that correct? I don't know that my kids in particular are so worried about that. Or generally speaking, I see that in this generation. I see that in true, um, but at the same time, I feel like our kids are a lot more accepting to everything, and that's sort of the silver lining in all of it, which is you know the nice part. But it's I yeah, it's difficult. And then you know they're still they're still making fun of each other in other ways which is awful on and they're certainly making fun of me and they do not feel bad about it no, <laughs> no yeah. your kids well that's their yeah, job that's at least i job. figure that's what my kids job is. <laughs> make sure that dad's made fun of constantly yeah it's important oh my gosh yeah well i i agree with you i think that is absolutely i think there's great things about um this generation but i think that talk a little about women uh, i want you to talk about whatever's important let's talk to you, about women. seriously um, that's why you're here i want to know what's what matters to you Sorry. so i think that that as women there's a lot of effort now being put into training young women to be in positions of leadership to in, in the corporate world, in the political world. Um, and, and I think it's so important that women come together and create, I'm just going to put it in the most basic terms, sort of norms and values of how we're going to do it differently. Because if we just step into the same positions and play by the same rules. It's nothing more than set dressing. Yeah. I, I think set dressing is, um, I mean, I want women there no matter what, but the world's only going to become a better place if we do it differently. You know, if we are willing to have hard conversations, we're willing to not cancel each other at the drop of a hat. We're willing to respect each other's unique journeys. And I think we have a chance to do it differently, but I think we have to, we must. And um, one of the things that we're working on, I'm gonna, can I yes. plug the, the Montecito Journal? Because 
we've put a lot of time and resources behind developing a national book called The Giving List Women that's going to come out in the spring. And it is telling the story of 50 organizations around the world that are moving the needle for women and girls from an intersectional perspective. So the idea is that women and girls must be viewed as a lens in giving, not a lane. So across the board, whatever you care about, so important to lift up women, and we know that. We know that that is the most powerful lever for change. And I say we, like this is being studied at Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at the University of Indiana, the Gates Foundation, so many people have been working on this for years, and so the data is there. And yet less than 2% of all philanthropic dollars go to lift up women and girls currently. 2%? 2%. Less than 2%. It's like 1.8, 1.9%. And that's been static for five years. Wow. And so we are joining in partnership with major foundations around the world, with Gates, with Lilly, with uh, Global Fund for Women, Philanthropy Together, Women Moving Millions, Annenberg Foundation, Curve Foundation, Linked Foundation, New York Women's Foundation. We're all coming together. And... And we are in partnership in this Giving List Women book. And then we're all coming together in Montecito in April um, at a summit with the idea of really strengthening this narrative around the importance of lifting up women and girls and the importance of women and girls doing it differently. And, and also um, to really give donors, men and women, this is not just about women, this is about all of us in solidarity, giving people this fact-based justification for applying this lens to their giving and to their work. And, um, and that doesn't mean that boys should be left out. They should not. Um, but it does mean that, that, for example, there are more... Uh, I want to give you a good in the environment, for example. There are more um, climate refugees than there are war refugees now in the, in the world. And in refugee communities, it's really important that money go through women, not exclusively, but certainly in part because women largely feed the communities. Women largely make sure the kids are educated. Women, you know, so there is, and I don't know about you, but I look around the world right now and I think, different if women, more women were in power, but only if we bring a different ethos to leadership. So you know, it's funny that you say that because my friend and I were, and my son were just walking in the park yesterday and my son said, you know, dad, I think the world would be a way better place if women were in charge. Yes. And I said, you're right about that. It would be certainly less violent and kinder. <laughs> he said, well, how do we make that happen? I said, I have no idea. No idea. It's so funny though, because I, but I said this to Les, to my husband, the other day. So we were watching the news, if you can call it that. <laughs> and um, they were talking about the hostages, the women and girls. That yeah. Were, the women and children who had been released. And I was like, I feel so sorry for these men who are hostages. Like, it's always the women and children. Uh-huh. And a lot of these children grow up to be men. You know, they're like... And I... I just think it's so important that we not write boys off, too. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that we give them the tools to do it differently as well. Um, and that women, and when it, so when I say women lead, I mean lead by example. Right, and it has to start with the boys, too. Absolutely. Because it's not going to change overnight. And the boys will be the ones that will also help the girls and have it affect change. Justine's son has the best name ever. <laughs> you don't have to say it. Oh, he's, he's been, uh, we've talked about him a lot on this podcast. <laughs> he's friends with my daughter. Oh, okay. Diamond. Yeah. He's a sweetheart. He is. So um, I'm curious about something. You run a corporation yourself, correct? How do you uh, consciously run your organization in order to uh, achieve the philosophy that you believe in and and try to make sure that that it works the way you'd like it to? Uh, 
That is a very good question. I, um, I learn every day from the people I work with. I try very hard to give my colleagues agency um, to try things that they're interested in and to be creative. And I, I try always to give credit because I know um, I could not be doing this alone. And uh, Justine Bell's my partner, and I joke all the time that, uh, so my partner and I, uh, who is the son of the former owner of the Montecito Journal. So, uh, this is not your marriage partner, this is your business my partner. My work partner. Okay. My work husband. <laughs> and um, Tim Buckley, who, okay. uh, who, you know, we came to this relationship from very different political perspectives. Yeah. And uh, we have tried very hard to walk the talk of, <laughs> uh, of having conversations. And he reads everything I write. And he will often say, if you just take this line out, this trigger line, people may not agree with you, but they'll at least be able to read it. And that's really helpful to me. That's really helpful to me to hear another perspective. And Do you listen to him? Often. Yeah. Yeah. If I... If I I can wrap my head around it and it makes sense to me. I only ask because why not be a lightning rod and really speak what, it, what matters but to I you? But I do. She does. And he never, he never has asked me once to not speak. So you don't compromise your integrity in any way? No, I, I don't think so. And he okay. has, he's smart and has good advice and I think it's a great balance and I think it comes through. So you get, you know, the whole readership sees fairness. I feel really supported by him. And we joke that our Venn diagram of our relationship is like an eight. There's <laughs> no overlap <laughs> in the middle. We have such different skills that we bring. And he wrote to me recently, jokingly, he said, actually, I think there's a little bit there's of a crossover. <laughs> and I said, well, what's in that little space in the middle? And he said, carbs. Oh, that's so <laughs> funny. <laughs> That's our overlap. Um, <laughs> That's funny. But uh, so, you know, so I, I answer your question. I, I, the answer is I hope so. Okay. And um, I think that I'm constantly learning. I'm also constantly learning from my investors. Like we, when I um, set out to raise money to do this, I was really hopeful that I would get a few wealthy people to write a really super big check. And instead, I got 30 people to write still big checks, but less big checks. Um, and it turned out to be such an inadvertent blessing. About that, you have 30 small, not small. That I but have, no one feels a huge ownership of right, it. Yeah. Right. They all feel proud of it and the ownership. And really, my one rule was no jerks. Boy, that's a hard one. It was, and I mostly <laughs> did it. <laughs> and, that's a tough one. And um, but I, I, I really, I learned so much, and so many of these people are entrepreneurs and business people, and know so much more than I do about running a business. And so I always have really smart people to learn from, and that's been great. That helps. And your friends that are Jewish, what do they tell you about what they're experiencing these days? Is there, I know I'm switching subjects, but. Okay. Um, I didn't notice. You what? Are you kidding? I said I didn't notice. I'm just curious about, I mean, I, in my practice, I see a fair number of Jewish people because my name is very easily identified as a Jewish um, name. And so people come to see me sometimes, uh, you know, usually it's based on satisfied customers, friends, and families, but also. There's a, an idea that because I'm Jewish, I'll understand the culture. And so there's a lot that doesn't need to be explained, which is true. But the amount of fear and discomfort is it's unlike anything I ever experienced. It's in some ways even worse than the mudslide and how that affected our community. Um, I know. I, 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 my, my experience is very similar. You, you might what? Very similar experience I have. Um, My husband and I talk about how we both go to bed feeling sad every night and wake up feeling sad. 
And I try not to watch the news or scroll too much yeah. through stuff because it's depressing. And it's and, and I think a lot of my friends feel very helpless right now. And yeah. and I don't think any of us ever imagined that we would feel this way in our lifetime. And I No. Um I mean when I was born the Holocaust had ended eighteen years before. Don't do the math. So, um, and to me, it seemed like a, a lifetime away. Like, yeah. it seemed like ancient history. And now I think, God, 18 years ago, we had already bought our home here. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I had had my first child. Like, it was yesterday. And you realize that history repeats itself, that people do have the capacity for evil, that people have, you know, uh, not only the ability, but some need to belittle the other. Right. Yeah. Um, because it makes them feel more powerful. And I, and I do think that I think we have a big problem in this world right now. I think we have too many groups of people who don't feel seen, who feel like they're losing their grip on whatever power they thought they had. And I think that's being exploited by leaders. Yeah. And um, so, so in answer to your question, a lot of my Jewish friends are feeling very deeply concerned and not exactly sure what to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I'm, I'm not sure what there is to do. What, what, what is there to do? What, I mean, what are you doing to handle the fear? You know, one of the wonderful things about owning a newspaper is that you actually get to say something. something <laughs> That's <to> true. Say. <laughs> Although I will tell you that one of the reasons that I didn't publish a number of pieces that I had written at the beginning I kind of went, God, I'm really vulnerable here. Like, anyone could walk onto my property. Yeah. Like, you know, we got a nest camp to find out because, like, I don't, like, I don't know. Am I safe here? People know who I am. My phone number is in the paper. Right. My email address is in the paper. It's very easy to know where people live here. Uh And, um, yeah. I, I mean, last year, you, do you remember? Well, you live in the Mesa. You remember when those flyers were distributed around the Mesa? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we got one in our neighborhood. So, um, I mean, that was horrifying to me. It was terrible. And I remember having a conversation. I've never talked about this publicly, and I'm not going to use names, but I remember having a conversation with a local journalist who had um, paraphrased a local official saying that well it wasn't um, it wasn't a hate crime because the flyers were not delivered exclusively to Jewish homes and right. I said well first of all it's not a hate crime it's hate speech but second of all what and I just said so you're telling me if someone lights a cross on fire outside of a black church and some white people see it, it's not a hate crime. <laughs> like, yeah. That doesn't make any sense. And um, there is a little bit to me that feels like, well, the Jewish people are like just privileged white people. Like it doesn't uh-huh. matter. They could take care of them. Yes. Although I will say when I did a DNA test, they identified Jews as being a separate race from white people. And I don't think most people realize that. That if you're Jewish, you're a separate race from white people. Because a lot of Jewish people don't look like white people. (laughs) So um, it's a misnomer just to consider that we're white in a certain way. Well, and there are all kinds of, um, yeah, there are Jews all over the world. Yeah. And um, 
for sure. And you said that you found out you were part Ashkenazi and part huh. Sephardic, right? Uh-huh. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, but how do you answer on a questionnaire? Do you say white or do you say other? I don't I mean, I usually say white because I don't really care to tell right. you the truth. Right, right, right. <laughs> I think, why would anybody care? But I know that people do. I mean, for the first time in my, I've been married for, and known my wife for almost 50 years. And a couple of weeks ago, she said to me, do I need to be worried? And she's not Jewish, but she has my last name. So she is Jewish. And that's the first time ever in the history of our being together that she's been concerned. How did you answer that? I said, I don't know. I, I said, I don't think so uh, in Santa Barbara, but I would be worried about going to Europe right now and other places where uh, Jewish people have a tendency to be, you know, preyed upon anyway. I mean, I remember a few years ago reading the president of France said, you know, if you're Jewish, you'd probably move to Israel or somewhere else because it's not safe to be a Jew in France. And I just said, what? And he was saying, it's not because I'm, I'm prejudiced, but all the refugees that have come into um France, it's not safe for Jews anymore. Well, that's what's so amazing to me about hearing students chant from the river to the sea. Yeah. First of all, I think a lot of them they have no idea what what the hell they're talking about. But yeah, and then they say Jews should go back to where they came from. Well, where did they come from? (laughs) They came from there. (laughs) They they Jews were in that part of the world since seventh century BC. You know, Uh so you know certainly. Western Europe and Eastern Europe is not where we should go back to. I mean, we were not exactly welcome there. Well, I also know that Sweden, as an example, is one of the most dangerous countries in the world now for Jews. Yeah, because of all the refugees that have come in. And so it is a scary thing. So, Gwen, before we run out of time, we're talking in very sad terms here. Do you have any hope? Is there hope in your heart? I always feel hope. Do you? Are you a relatively optimistic person? It's funny. When my husband met me, he said, I think that you're a pessimist. No, he said, I think you're an optimist. And just underneath that is pessimism. And then underneath that is optimism again. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what he said when he met me. So you're like Neapolitan ice cream. to that. Um, You know what? I... I'm just one of those people who walks into a room and thinks, well, how could I make this situation better? It's oh, just okay. it's a bit of a disease. And, um, and so I just think that I just, did you ever read the book Sapiens? I did. So you know how he talks about concepts, whether it's human rights or women's rights. They're just, human-made concepts they're not god-given they're not Uh and if you don't continue to fight for things and to work to strengthen concepts you know man-made concepts Uh they go away they're like sand that slip through your fingers and i think that we've learned that right like we probably i grew up feeling like things just were always on this linear path to better. You know, like gay people were getting more rights, people of color were having more rights, Jews were, you know, it's like everything was just always kind of little by little getting better. And we now know that that's not true. Like we grew up in a very easy time for some people in this country. Yeah. And um, not so much anymore. It's it's a very tough time, I think, since 9-11. It's been a very... Like one thing after another. Yeah. And I look at our kids, and I mean, my kids, what they've gone through since the debris flow and with COVID and with the yeah. the racial reckoning and everything. It's like there's been no calm in their lives and no constant in their lives except their family, God willing. You Which know? is important. Very, very. But so, yeah, I'm always optimistic um, but I also don't think you can ever rest. Like, I don't think you could ever take goodness for granted. I don't think you could take peace for granted. Yeah. Um, and I think the world only gets better if you work really, really hard to make it better. And, but I do think it could be better. 
I agree, and I think it's also sort of a Jewish cultural thing to um, just sort of always keep your eyes behind you in a way, which I'm not sure is either healthy or not healthy, but it's just the reality of the way things have gone over the course of centuries, really. It's so funny that you say that because you asked me at the beginning of this conversation how being the daughter of a Holocaust survivor impacted me. Yeah. And I never walk into a room without knowing where the doors in the room are. Uh-huh. I learned it's a that very unconscious thing, but I'm uh-huh. I am now very aware of it. I actually learned that working in a mental hospital. <laughs> Always know where the door is just in case you need to run. So that all that did was reinforce the uh, need for safety. But I, you know, I think that because of natural selection, and I hate to put it in those terms, that the only Jews that are left after the Holocaust are ones that are either really, really capable and smart or super lucky. Because so many Jews were killed that it's only the lucky ones and the super smart ones that escaped. You know, I could, I could have fun debating that with you. Well, I, and I mean, again, I think you're true. I, 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 think I don't mean right. it in absolute terms. No, no, no. Certainly, it took a certain amount of sechel, you know, resourcefulness yes. to know not to show up at the train station. That's right. Or to, yeah. you know, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right. And to, have you ever read The Gift of Fear? I love that book. I mean, that, that book is by Gavin DeBecker, right? Give he's me, amazing. He's I amazing. think it's a book that every woman should read, for sure. And every human should read because yeah. we are born with really good instincts. Uh-huh. And then we talk ourselves out of those instincts as we age. It's a story of my professional practices, teaching people how to trust their instincts. How to trust their intuition. Because I really believe that that's the voice of God inside of all of us. And it's very sacred. And I think that we make things way too complicated. But now we're getting way off the subject. Um, But it's not. It's not. Because I think, by the same token, I think most human beings know right from wrong. I hope that you're right about that. Some may not care. That's true. But they know. Yes. And... You know, I think it's up to us as humans to sort of say, yeah, actually there are some behaviors that are unacceptable. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, and there are some, and sometimes the betterment of the community is more important than the betterment of the individual, like sometimes. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, what kind of world do we want to live in? And um, I just think that it's time to like ask ourselves a lot of these questions and to rethink some of the things that at least I could speak for myself. I grew up taking for granted. Yeah. I think that's incredibly well said. I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been really a pleasure to get to know you and I, I, I appreciate you even more than I did from reading your work and all of that. So, so th- thanks for taking the time. Likewise. Very kind.